Section 38 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 38. No nurse, just Lillian. Tell me, Madge. Dicky's tone was tense, and I recognized the note of jealous anger which generally preceded his scenes. "'Are you going to have that old goat take you out to dinner? Because if you are—' He broke off abruptly, as if he thought an unspoken threat would be more terrifying than one put into words. I knew to what he referred. As hostess, I, of course, should be escorted into dinner— by the stranger in our almost family party, Robert Gordon, who was also the oldest man present. Ordinarily, Dickie would have realized that his demand to have me change this conventional arrangement was a most ill-bred and inconsiderate thing. But Dickie sane and Dickie jealous, however, were two different men. Always, before this day, Dicky had regarded with tolerant amusement the strange interest shown in me by the elderly man of mystery who had known my mother. But the magnificent chrysanthemums which Mr. Gordon had brought me, dozens of them, costing much more money than the ordinary conventional floral gift to one's hostess ought to cost, had roused his always smouldering jealousy to an unreasoning pitch. Fear of hurting Robert Gordon's feelings was the one consideration that held me back from defying Dickie's mandate. Experience had taught me the best course to pursue with Dickie. If, as I suppose, you are referring to Mr. Gordon, it may interest you to know that I have not the faintest intention of going in to dinner with him, I retorted coolly. Lillian wants to talk with him about South America, and I shall have your friend Mr. Underwood as my escort. Gee, how happy you'll be, sneered Dicky. but I could see that he was relieved at my information. You're so fond of dear old Harry, aren't you? To tell you the truth, I have to fight all the time against becoming too fond of him, I returned mockingly. He can be dangerously fascinating, you know. Dicky laughed in a way that showed me his brainstorm over Robert Gordon had been checked, but there was a startled look in his eyes which changed to a more speculative scrutiny before he moved away. "'Oh, old Harry's all right,' he said. "'He's my pal, and he never means anything anyway.' But I noticed that he said it as if he were trying to convince himself of the truth of his assertion. When I told Harry Underwood that he was to take me in to dinner, and we were leading the way into the dining-room, his brilliant black eyes looked down into mine mockingly, and he said, "'You see, it is fate. No matter how you struggle against it, you cannot escape me.' "'Do I look as if I were struggling?' I laughed back, and saw a sudden expression of bewilderment in his eyes, followed instantly by a flash of triumph." Everything that was caddishly feminine in me leaped to life at that look in the eyes of the man whom I detested, whom I had even feared. I could read plainly enough in his eyes that he thought the assiduous flatteries he had always paid me were commencing to have their result. 
that I was beginning to recognize the dangerous fascination he was reputed to have for women of every station. I had a swift, savage desire to avenge the women he must have made suffer, to hurt him as before dinner he had wounded Lillian. So, instead of turning an impassive face to Mr. Underwood's remark, I listened with just the hint of an elusive, mischievous smile twisting my lips. "'No, you don't look very uncomfortable. You look—' He caught his breath, as if with some emotion too strong for utterance, and then said a trifle huskily, "'Will you let me tell you how you look to me?' I had to exercise all my self-control to keep from laughing in his face. He was such a poser. His simulation of emotion was so melodramatic that I wondered if he really imagined I would be impressed by it. A spirit of mischievous daring stirred in me. "'Don't tell me just now,' I said softly. "'Wait till after dinner.' "'Afraid?' he challenged. "'Perhaps,' I countered. He gave my hand, lying upon his arm, a swift, furtive pressure, and released it so quickly that there was no possibility of his being observed. I had no time to rebuke him, had I been so disposed, for we had almost reached our places at the table. I do not remember much of the dinner over which Mother Graham, Katie, and I worked so assiduously. That everything went off smoothly, as we had planned, that from the cassaba melons, which were served first, to the walnuts of the last course, everything was delicious in flavor and perfect in service, I was gratefully but dimly aware. For I felt as if I were on the brink of a volcano, not because of Harry Underwood's elaborate show of attention to me, to which I was pretending to respond, much to the disgust of my mother-in-law, but on account of the queer behavior of Robert Gordon. Lillian, who was making a pitifully brave attempt to bring to the occasion all the airy brightness with which she was wont to make any gathering favored by her presence a success, secured only the briefest responses from him, although he had taken her out to dinner. Sometimes he made no answer at all to her remarks, evidently not hearing them. He watched me almost constantly, and so noticeable was his action that I saw every one at the table was aware of it. It was a gaze to set anyone's brain throbbing with wild conjectures, so mournful, so elusive it was. The fantastic thought crossed my mind that this mysterious elderly friend of my dead mother's looked like a long famished man coming suddenly in sight of food. By the time the dinner was over, I was intensely nervous. Katie served us our coffee in the living room, and when I took mine, my hand trembled so that the tiny cup rattled against the saucer. I rose from my chair and walked to the fireplace, set the cup upon the mantel, and stood looking into the blazing logs Jim had heaped against the old chimney. My guests could not see my face, and I hoped to be able to pull myself together. "'Ready to have me tell you how you look to me now?' said Harry Underwood's voice, softly and insidiously in my ear. I started and moved a little away from him, which brought me nearer to the fire. 
The next moment I was wildly beating at little tongs of flame running up the flimsy fabric of my dress. I heard hoarse shouts, shrill screams, felt rough hands seize me, and wrap me in heavy stifling cloth which seemed to press the flames searingly down into my flesh, and then for a little I knew no more. It seemed only a moment that I lost consciousness. When I came back to myself I was lying on the couch with Lillian Underwood's deft, tender fingers working over me. From somewhere back of me Dicky's voice sounded in a hoarse, gasping way that terrified me. "'For God's sake, Lil, is she?' Lillian's voice, firm, reassuring, answered. "'No, Dicky, no. She's pretty badly burnt, I fear, but I am sure she will be all right.' "'Now, dear boy, get your mother to her room and make her lie down. "'Mrs. Durkee and I can take care of Madge better with you all out of the way. "'Did you get a doctor, Alfred?' "'Coming as soon as he can get here,' Alfred Durkee replied. "'Good,' Lillian returned. "'Now, everybody except Mrs. Durkee, get out of here. "'Katie, bring a blanket, some sheets, and one of Mrs. Graham's old night-dresses from her room. "'I shall have to cut the gown.' Even through the terrible, scorching heat which seemed to envelop my body, I realized that Lillian, as always, was dominating the situation. I could hear the snip of her scissors as she cut away the pieces of burnt cloth, and the low-toned directions of Mrs. Durkee, which told me that Lillian already had secured our first aid kit, and was giving me the treatment necessary to alleviate my pain until the physician should arrive. I am sorry to confess it, but I am a coward where physical pain is concerned. I am not one of those women who can bear the torturing pangs of any illness or accident without an outcry, and, struggle as I might, I could not repress the moan which rose to my lips. I know, child, Lillian's tender hands held my writhing ones. Her pitying eyes looked into mine. But she turned from me the next moment, in amazement, for Robert Gordon, the mysterious man who had loved my mother, appeared, as if from nowhere, at her side, twisting his hands together and muttering words which I could not believe to be real, so strange and disjointed were they. I felt that they must be only fantasies of my confused brain. "'Mr. Gordon, this will never do!' Lillian said sternly. I thought I had sent everyone out of the room except Mrs. Durkee. I know. I am going right away again. But I had to come this time. Is she going to die? Not if I can get a chance to attend to her without everybody bothering me. I am very sure she is not seriously injured. Now you must go away. Mr. Gordon fled at once and Lillian and Mrs. Durkee worked so swiftly and skillfully that when the physician, a kindly elderly practitioner from Crest Haven, arrived, my pain had been assuaged. By his direction I was carried to my own room. I must have fainted before they moved me, for the next thing I remember was the sound of the doctor's voice. "'There is nothing to be alarmed over,' the physician was saying to a shadowy someone at the head of my bed, a someone who was breathing heavily, and the trembling of whose body I could feel against the bed. Of course, the shock has been severe, and the pain of moving her was too much for her, but she is coming round nicely, 
You may speak to her now. The shadowy someone moved forward a little, resolved itself to my clearing sight as my husband. He knelt beside the bed and put his lips to my uninjured hand. Sweetheart, sweetheart, he murmured. My own girl, is the pain very bad? Not now, I answered faintly, trying to smile, but only succeeding in twisting my mouth into a grimace of pain. The flames had mercifully spared my hair and most of my face, but there was one burn upon one side of my throat, extending up into my cheek, which made it uncomfortable for me to move the muscles of my face. "'Don't try to talk,' Dicky replied. "'Just lie still and let us take care of you. Lil will stay, I know, until we can get a nurse here, won't you, Lil?' As a frightened child might do, I turned my eyes to Lillian, beseechingly. "'No, nurse, just Lillian,' I faltered. Lillian stooped over me reassuringly. "'No one shall touch you but me,' she said decisively, and then, turning to the physician, said demurely, "'Do you think I can be trusted with the case, doctor?' "'Most assuredly,' the physician returned heartily. Indeed, if you can stay, it is most fortunate for Mrs. Graham. Good trained nurses are at a premium just now, and great care will be necessary in this case to prevent disfigurement. A quick stifled exclamation of dismay came from Dicky. Is there any danger of her face being scarred? he asked worriedly. Not while I'm on the job, Lillian returned decisively and there was no idle boasting in her statement, simply quiet certainty. But there was another note in her voice, or so it seemed to my feverish imagination, a note of scorn for Dicky that he should be thinking of my possible disfigurement when my very life had been in question but a moment before. A sick terror crept over me. Did my husband love me only for what poor claims to pulchritude I possessed? Suppose the physician should be mistaken, and I be hideously scarred, after all, as I had seen fire victims scarred, would I see the love-light die in his eyes? Would I never again witness the admiring glances Dicky was wont to flash at me when I wore something especially becoming? I had often wondered, since my marriage, whether Dicky's love for me was the real lasting devotion which could stand adversity. I knew that no matter how old or gray or maimed or disfigured Dicky might become, he would be still my royal lover. I should never see the changes in him. But if I should suddenly turn an ugly, scarred face to Dicky, would he shrink from me? An epigram from one of the sanest and cleverest of our modern humorists flashed into my mind. Dicky and I read it together only a few weeks before. Heaven help you, madam, if your husband does not love you because of your foibles instead of in spite of them. Did all women have this experience, I wondered, and then, as Lillian's face bent over me, I caught my breath in an understanding wave of pity for her. This was what she was undergoing. This experience of seeing her husband turn away his eyes from her, as if the very sight of her was painful to him. Dicky would never do that, I knew. He had not the capacity for cruelty which Harry Underwood possessed. 
but I was sure it would torture me more to know that he was disguising his aversion than to see him openly express it. End of chapter 38